0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Bible Discoveries, The Weekend Show. My name is Corey. If this is your first time here and I'm joined by my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. Hey. Hey. What's going on? Lots of stuff. So on this show, You know, and on Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV, we're reading through the entire Bible this year as we do every year. And on this show, the weekend show, we aim to really kind of slow it down because the daily reading on Bible Discovery is quite large. It's quite hefty to get through the entire Bible in the year. And so we want to talk about big issues that pop up and we want to take time to discuss some of your comments and questions as well that you send us via email in the comment section. So thank you so much for doing that. It's really fun for us to be able to get to interact with you. I, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the weekend show, for sure. Yeah. Which is good. Okay, so, Matlock, why don't you let them know <laughs> sure. where we were supposed to right. read in the scripture this yes. week? Yes.
1: If you're following along with us at Bible Discovery, we're supposed to read Exodus 18 to Leviticus 4. So that is from Monday to Sunday. Yes. That's our schedule. Yes.
0: So, so lots of laws in there.
1: Lots of laws. Lots Exodus of laws. is Exodus is, 20 is a big one where the Ten Commandments come in. Yeah. Right? So, but... Yeah, most of our questions have to do with Exodus. Obviously, not many because we're only doing four chapters of Leviticus. One question regarding Leviticus. And we have a big question.
0: We do. A big question. It's been a few weeks.
1: Which we'll answer at the end of the episode. Yeah. And it is from Michael Abbott, 9080. And the question is Please excuse my comment. I'm not trying to be clever or critical. But why should I care what the Bible says? Especially when there's so little verifiable evidence that it is true. Right. So a skeptic doesn't believe, nice comment, fair question, we're answered at the end of the episode. For now, though, let's begin.
0: Let's begin, Matlock. And yes. I am going to begin with you, yes, if please. you don't mind. No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so this question is for you from Exodus 20, okay? So from the, that 10 commandments right. chapter, at least the first, the first one, the first time it's recorded. And the question is this. Can Christians create images of Jesus in art or portray Jesus in films or TV shows? If it is forbidden to make images of God and Jesus is God, then would it not be forbidden to make images of Jesus? Okay. What say you?
1: Okay, so let's read this. Let's do ex- That's a good idea. So we're doing uh, Exodus 20 and we're going to read verse 4 and verses 5, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Let's read verse 3 to start. You shall have no other gods before me. All right. Mm -hmm. Then verse four goes, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so long story short, uh, verse, uh, verse 4, the second commandment, right, mm-hmm. uh, has to do with idolatry primarily. So this is, this is not just a carved image. How do we know this? It's like, don't make any carved image of things in heaven and things in the earth. It's like, well, we know that the Ark of the Covenant had angels on it. So if he's asking us not to make any carved image in as entirely... Then why would he also contradict himself? Yeah, by us- and
0: like the curtains of the tabernacle had angel images yes. in them with their embroidery, and then later in Solomon's temple, same thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's not about carved images, per se.
0: And it- like a, and the and the I'm just thinking of more okay. examples. Yeah, go, There's the twelve bulls underneath the bronze uh, basin. The yes. labor in the temple that God ins- Himself instructed them to create. Yes. So lots of images going on.
1: And tons of images, and so you have that. You think about the bull and the golden calf. What's the big difference? Yeah. Well, the difference is one's being worshipped; one isn't. Yeah. Right. The, the bulls are serving God. Mm-hmm. Right. That they're there to serve God's purposes, whereas the golden calf is to usurp God's purpose as, for worship. But this has a direct correlation. What we just read in Exodus twenty, verses four to six. Uh, Direct correlation to Romans 1 verses 21 to 25. So I'll just read that so people hear this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, there's an exchange afoot. Not just the images themselves, is the exchange that these mortal things will take the place of God. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, again, that exchange takes place. And what's interesting here, too, I want to add something to this, to the second command, is when it says... Um, uh, God gave them up to uh, to dishonorable passions. Okay, so God gave them up. And what do we see happening in, in Exodus 20? Well, uh, you should not bow to them or serve them, God says, because God's a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to those who don't. So we see here that in Romans uh, 1, you have God giving them up to the dishonorable passions. It's paralleled. With this idea that god is visiting iniquity on the forefathers mm-hmm. so like he's allowing he's permitting this iniquity to take place basically right and it's kind of like a, a yeah what is that um image of the of the thing that consumes the tails It's eating itself essentially right self-consuming self-defeating mm-hmm. um anyway so that's the parallel that's happening there so god's giving them up to their own desires and those own desires are what breeds deep-seated iniquity that ends up destroying themselves um anyway so back to the original question just want to add that little caveat there uh, so can christians create jesus in art or portray jesus in films or tvs these are different things i know people have different levels and degrees about this i think it's fine personally and when i edit Corey segments like the the graphic art ones i incorporate images of jesus there all the time um, no one's worshiping those images i think that's what's important um obviously these are uh renditions or of we don't know the exact way christ looked so these are just to give you like an understanding of what he looked like um and because christ became a man because god became man uh i also don't see an issue with that so the the invisible became visible Mm -hmm. so he's the one like why were we making carved images he's the one that wanted to do it Uh, so he's the one that led the way in that regard so if it is forbidden to make images of God and Jesus is God, then why is it forbidden to make images of Jesus? Again, I don't think it is forbidden. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, wrong to be worshiping images that you make because that one thing that creates yeah. a barrier. Because then you're like, oh, this is an image I made of Jesus. I'm worshiping this. Yeah. Right? And then I think that can create. Uh, I don't want to say psychological, but spiritually, so it can create a weird idolatry. I think there can be something that come out of that because God created us. We don't worship. We don't worship God through our creations. Yeah. Right? We worship God who created us. So that's a huge, huge, dis- there needs to be a big barrier that we don't create something to worship God. There needs to be no medians or mediums between us. Mm-hmm. There to be a direct relationship to God. So and I think it can get weird if we're worshiping God through those things.
0: Absolutely. Right. And and that is, that is how... I I believe this is how this uh, commandment would have been understood by the Israelites at that time, uh, because of the cultural context that's going on. Right. Where um, like, what is an image? Right. It's interesting the 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 language that Genesis uses of mankind right. that we are made in the image of God and an image, an idol. It literally is idol. So an idol is the purpose of an idol is to, is. Um, to become indwelt by the spirit of the god right so ancient people understood that the statue the image that they were making of the god was not the god itself but they would do they would perform ceremonies spiritual ceremonies to get the god to spiritually indwell that image and then It was a proxy for the god so then they dressed it up in the best jewels and the best clothes and they gave it ceremonial food and all of these things and it was to show how much they loved and served and honored this god well god is too big for that you know he he doesn't have a physical body except for christ in in the incarnation and we are to be Essentially, the temple of God. We are in the images of God. We can be indwelt with God's Spirit, not to receive worship, but to give worship to God. Right. And that whole, that whole concept that you're talking about, uh, um, just to back you up here in the concept where we're not supposed to worship god through something that we have made rather we are made to give god worship right so god's god already up. done that god's right. already created the means through which we should worship him and it gets really messed up when we're like no 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 no. we're gonna create the means by right. which we worship you and we see this come out i think in a really interesting way between david and god because right. david's like god uh, and he had he had a, he thought he was having a good intention god right. i'm sitting here in this cedar panelled house this amazing palace that i've built for myself i want to build you a house i want to build you a temple and what does god say to david no right. no no you're not going to build me a house i'm going to build you a house right. i'm going to make a name for you a dynasty a house for you so we we see that concept reinforced right
1: and I, and t- there's two other points i want to kind of address here which I, everything you said i spot on um, it says, don't make a carved image. It doesn't say whether or not it's alive or conscious or not. Mm-hmm. It says don't make a con- anything from heaven above or, or earth. Like, so it's like the cross itself, this cross that I have on my neck. It's like, okay, well, that's technically a tree. And we know that people historically in different religions worship trees. Yep. So if they worship trees, that would be something you would have to negate. So it has to do, it can't just be carved images. Yes. That is extremely, legal. it just, just doesn't work. And, I can't, and you, know, you can even extend it to paintings and other, other things. Um, but also to, to, add to this concept that you're talking about, that God already did that and God indwells us, so not worshiping through our creations, right? Um, it's, you think about the nature of how Satan perverts everything mm-hmm. and he does everything in, a, in, the, in its opposite form. So even the concept of idolatry where you're worshiping an idol and the idol that like you're saying, uh, the spirit of the gods or the demons indwell the, the statue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that concept in itself, yet yeah, it's lifeless, as Isaiah talks about. It. it has, it can't talk. It's got a mouth, but it can't talk and eyes, it can't see. Um, that is supposed to be like the exact opposite of what we are. Yeah. Like God indwells us. If you think about that, it's like, okay, the spirit of God indwells us rather than the spirit of God's indwelling statues. It's supposed to be a reversal. Mm-hmm. And you can even attach that to the concept of Nephilim as well. It's supposed to be this reversal of God's creation and how we're supposed to worship. Um, and God's supposed to indwell us. So we don't need something exterior of us to worship God because yeah. God indwells us. That's the, that's the purpose. Um, now, again, we, we can beat this with a horse, but again, I I really don't think carving images... It's, it just doesn't make any sense of the verse. Yeah. It has everything to do with worship.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, um, uh, people might go, well, okay, then why historically in ancient Israel was there this ban on carved images? Because when you go in and you start to study 1st century AD, even like 1st uh, and 2nd century BC, hmm. um and, and first and second century AD, you can see that within Judaism, there was an outright ban on, um, artistic representation on anything that was alive. Um, not, not wholesale, because you can find synagogues that have representations of like Samson and, 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 and people and heroes from the past, but, I, I mean, generally speaking, when when you look at the, the coins of Herod the Great, for example, yeah. he puts flower images on them and manure images on his coins because he knows that it might offend the religious sensibilities of, of some of the like really, really hardcore um Jewish elements of of his society at that point if he puts on like his face, for right. example. Right? right. Uh and and that is I think that this this should be properly tied to kind of the rules on the rules that had developed at this time. Uh, And there's nothing inherently wrong with building rules on rules as long as you keep them separate. And what I mean by that is... And a lower
1: priority. yes, Yes,
0: and a lower priority. And what I mean by that is we see... We see you know, the, the Pharisees, for example, coming along and they try to do something really helpful, really, really helpful is that they're like, okay, the law of God was given in a, in a different context than what we are currently living in here in the first couple centuries AD, all right? They wouldn't have phrased it that way, but essentially, if you go with me on this, Our culture is different. We live in a different time. We live in the time period of the Roman Empire. How do we live God's law in our day and age? And so they began teaching ways to follow God's law based on their culture. So they made rules about how to follow the rules. But the problem is by the time Jesus gets there, their rules have become the same as the scripture. So their interpretation of the rules have become the exact same right. as the scripture and there's no wiggle room for them to be wrong. So Jesus, when he comes in and he begins to criticize them and criticize their different rules, he criticizes the rules that they have on on washing for rit- the ritual purity laws. He criticizes their marriage laws uh, where divorce was, anything goes. He criticizes uh, uh, the honor your mother and father rules that they had. And mm-hmm. he said, by your very laws, you're actually undercutting the purpose of God's original law, even though you think you're not. So um, this, the, the outright ban on any sort of um artistic representation of anything alive, right. I think should be seen as a rule on a rule. Yes. And some people are really, really, this is a this is a make or break issue for them. And to that I say, Follow your sensibilities. You know right. what I mean. But you got to be really careful not to um, not to condemn people for religious artwork as long as the purpose of that religious artwork is not to worship right. worship that. As a proxy for God, if you know what I'm trying yeah, to like say. Yeah,
1: like you need this thing to worship God. Like yeah. you need this image or this card, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Even that.
0: like I I'm I'm personally uncomfortable with certain sects of Christianity and and um some of their artistic representation of the saints or right. of, of Mary and Christ based on uh, the veneration of those things. And right. I know that's a whole other conversation. Yes. And we can have that conversation at a different time. There's there's an avenue there. But in terms of like Jesus in children's books, or in literature or on illuminated manuscripts or things like that, right. I don't think the argument holds that that those the purpose of those things is to worship them.
1: Right. And um to add an additional comment you're saying oh, a world's a top of rules aren't a bad thing. So for instance, suppose this rule of not having any uh, images of anything alive, uh-huh. anything, right? Because we know that there already were, like you said, the bulls and the angels yeah. and the cherubim, right? Yeah. So there already were, but they're like, okay, no more. Like we don't want to do that culturally. Mm-hmm. Well, because what's surrounding them culturally? Whole bunch of idol worship sur- using yes. these images. Yes. So they're like, just don't even do it to avoid temptation, kind of like Adam and Eve. And yes, True don't know, right? don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. Uh-huh. So it's like, okay, just avoid it now. Um, and, but you can also do things like trees and flowers. You can do that. But what's not in their area is worship of trees. But if worship of trees were in their area and worship of right, then this things like the, yes. of that nature would change. It would yes. change the way you would see those things. Yes. So that's what I'm saying. So a rural type of rule is like okay, it's important. It's it's a cultural role. We need this for now. Yeah. But it's not like it can't be as high as priority as the the first one. So I I, I totally agree with you. And um, in a sense too, this the the, the third commandment here, um, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain, for the Lord your God. Does not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That taking in his name in vain is like the the verbal parallel to the visual that we just described. So you have the visual parallel with carved images. Mm-hmm. Don't take, don't visually take his name in vain. And then you have the verbal, don't take his name. With right. Your, right? So yeah. you have that double Dishonestly parallel. Dishonestly
0: or inappropriately or. That's yeah. right. So you have that. Sinfully.
1: Exactly. So it's it's like both in your words and in your actions and in your, how you, you know, in your art. Anyways. I think we've beaten that up. Yes, Let's I think so on. too. <laughs> Corey, <laughs> okay. Another Exodus twenty question. Perfect. This one is from our Church three sixty five program, mm-hmm. right? So, if any of you who are involved in that, you can sign up at Bible Discovery. You can go there, go to Church three sixty five, and you get discussion questions among other things. Uh, you can you can check it out at the website, and uh, once a week you can get these discussion questions. You know, for your Bible study, and it's a fun thing. So, here's one of the questions from there. It goes. Uh, why did God write the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel, and are they still important today? Why or why not?
0: Yeah. So these were these obviously the, the the Ten Commandments were not exhaustive rules for Israel, otherwise the rest of the rules wouldn't be in there, right? But what they do represent is main points of difference. Between Israel and the nations, main points of how Israel is supposed to live in holiness towards God. Uh, so, I mean, why did God write the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel? I think that answers it. These are these are ten main areas right. of of holiness that Israel is supposed to have. It's supposed to identify their culture. Like when you think of Israel, you should think of people who have no other gods before him, who are not involved in idolatry, who don't take God's name like willy nilly or dishonestly. Right. They they remember and keep the Sabbath. They honor their parents. They don't murder. They don't commit adultery. They don't steal. They don't bear false witness. So they're very honest and they don't covet. They're satisfied with the things that God has given them. They have learned contentment. So this is supposed to be. So
1: let me amp this up then. Because I think you're like, I got this. This is over. (laughs) This is a one minute answer. No, let me amp this up. Please. So in Leviticus like 18, 19, they have just random laws that kind of come about. Yeah. When Jesus asked what are the greatest uh, commands, he actually highlights, I think it's Leviticus 18, 19. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Okay. And he doesn't list the 10 commandments. Yep. He lists the Shema, Deuteronomy, right? Six, five to nine. And then he lists Leviticus 18, 19. So then why not just list the Ten Commandments like that?
0: Because, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Because Jesus was, he actually says. Right. Because he he says, all the law and the prophets hang on this. right. Right. So essentially everything is summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But because Israel already had a culture, just like we already have a culture, if the only thing that Jesus ever said to us was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, we'd be like, great, how? Right. Right. So Israel would, we would naturally, if we had no context, we would naturally fall back onto what we already know, what we've been taught in our life. And the immediate context of Israel was ancient Egypt, And the people that traded and regularly interacted with ancient Egypt, which was mainly Canaan. Right. Right? So they have, and I I think that's why you see in the law, we've got these moral laws of the Ten Commandments. We've got these, like, it's flushed out. How do you do this? What does that look like? We've got these general statements of what that looks like in the Ten Commandments. And then you have it even more flushed out later on in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy um which i think is I, I think that's really interesting
1: right so okay so here's what i'm going to add more to this please okay so leviticus 18:19 is a list of like don't what, don't have beards right yeah <laughs> don't cut your beards a whole bunch of stuff like that don't eat shellfish whatever and um, among that is you know the love your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. um okay so the way it's written is just written just like seemingly randomly it's just like one rule then another rule then another rule why not just put the why not just make the Ten Commandments, like, why have the Ten Commandments distinct? Why not put them in, like, the Levitical laws like that? Yeah. Why not, why did we have this separation? Why are the Ten Commandments different from, like, the other laws? What's going on there?
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I think the, I think what I've already said still stands. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with this as these are, like, these are like big generalized statements right. of what your life should look like, what the everyday life of the Israelites should look like, and then it's further um, parsed out as later time on. goes
1: on. You mean like not as
0: time goes on, even okay. just further parsed out, right. right? What does it mean to not covet your neighbor, right? Well, the the rest of the laws deal with this, right. like if you see your neighbor's oxen falling in a ditch. Get it out. If you see someone who is your enemy, if you see their animal and it is escaped, bring it back to them. Like, don't be, don't, don't allow your jealousy and your dislike of this person. Stop you from doing the right thing. Stop you from being holy unto God. Because and 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 we see this. We see this flushed out in the, not only in the law but also in the prophets, where it's this this be holy because I am holy. And later on in the prophets, we see God saying, "Look, I make it rain on the just and the unjust. I'm not. Oh, you're a good person, therefore you're gonna you're gonna have crops. You're gonna have something to eat. No, I'm letting everyone eat." And everyone has this this right. this fair playing field, in a sense. Right. Right? So, all right. That's, you may not be satisfied with my answer, yeah. but that's the answer no, that's that I good. have. That's where I've landed. Right. I'd be really curious to hear what you think. Why do you think that the Ten Commandments are separated out? I think it's also really helpful for memorization.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was, right? Yeah. To
0: have, to have um, a, a set-aside kind of core, moral core right. of things going on.
1: One was for all of Israel. 10 commandments mm-hmm. and the other ones like the leviticus a lot mm-hmm. of them have to do with just the levites
0: yeah, so, yeah but that's how but, those levites yeah. live like what what that means to them
1: yes for sure right? and, and another thing i would add into because you mentioned this at the very beginning and i've kind of just like kicked the bucket down a different road <laughs> that's um, okay uh uh holiness mm-hmm. so in terms of like what does it mean you said culturally distinct mm-hmm. culturally holy as opposed to just culturally common let's say mm-hmm. um one thing I could, i would say is uh, Sabbath, for instance, right? Yeah. Keep the Sabbath. We're like, yep. whoa, what's going on there? Okay, so the, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I'm like, there's another reason why, right? Like, what? I can't remember. What, okay, so I'm just gonna read it for you. Like, why? What is this Sabbath sign? And it is listed in uh, Exodus 31, verse uh, 12 to 18. But I'll just read verse 13. Uh, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, uh, "This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, plural." For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So the point, the sign of the Sabbath, is that the the Lord makes you holy, it's not your works. Yes. That's the whole point. So the Ten Commandments are all to show, like, what does it mean to be holy? It's a big part of it. Like, what does it mean to be uh, God's people? Uh, So it's like a defining... A kind of defining social characteristics because the because the, the 10 as like we already talked about the 10 commandments are societally focused definitely whereas yeah. um love the or the shmah mm-hmm. versus um uh leviticus 18 19 uh, love your yourself those are individually predicated yeah predicated right uh so it's like you but you need that indiv- you need to atomize it a little bit you need to have that individual as well as the societal you need to have you need to have both and this individual is what fills in the, the societal gaps if there's ever, like, problems, right? Yeah. So you need to have the both. You, need, you, can't, you can't just have pure society, you get hive mind communism. And you can't have pure individualism, right? You get, like, do, deep-seated capitalism, and there's just mm-hmm. bad things can just happen mm-hmm. both ends, right? Mm-hmm. So, anyways, long story short, um, the point here is that I think it's, it's to sanctify. And, and that's really important.
0: Definitely. And yeah. then in terms of like the, the the last part of the question, are they still important today? Why are we not? Yeah, they're definitely yeah. still important today. And I would say because they're moral. I mean, the one, the one, like, so uh, um, creating an idol is, is, was wrong back then and it's wrong now. <laughs> it it just is. Lying is still wrong. Right. And uh, the one the one that causes people to get clammed up on is Sabbath, right? right? Like how legalistic do we get with the Sabbath? And I think it's really interesting because the Sabbath is the only one that cannot universally be applied by everyone. Right? We can all follow moral laws. We can all not make idols. We can all not kill we people. can all not murder. We can <laughs> all not lie. But based on the society that you're in, it's not, it's not always possible to follow the Sabbath. For example, in the first century AD, where most of the new Christians were not wealthy Christians, but a lot of them were slaves, you can't just say to your, to your master, well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm taking Sabbath off. You can't. That's just not the way right. life worked in certain parts of the world and it's still not how life works in certain parts of the world. So this is where we see the societal aspect of the Ten Commandments. Now, is it still a good thing to rest before God? I think yes. I think this is still a very good principle. But what you read in um, Exodus 31, it comes up later in Deuteronomy as well, it would be a really good um, study if this Sabbath issue is is really, really bothering you, would be to go on like Blue Letter Bible or Bible Gateway and do a search for Sabbath and look specifically at the law. Because what you're going to find, is there's going to be a couple times where God defines the Sabbath, like you already read, right. as an everlasting sign between God and Israel. It was a sign of specifically their covenant of the law. So just as just as circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, so the Sabbath was given as a sign to the people of Israel as a sign of their Mosaic covenant covenant that was a land grant specifically, right, for them to have the land of Israel. So this is really interesting. So then we see in Acts 15 that the Sabbath is not one of those things that is imposed on early Christians, Gentile Christians, because their covenant with God is for the new heavens and the new earth. It's for salvation. It's not for the land of Israel. That doesn't negate the moral laws of God or morality. It doesn't even mean that it's not a good thing to uh, observe the Sabbath. It right. is a good well, thing to observe the Sabbath, I think. It's
1: also just the nature of signs. Yeah. Like, uh, circumcision is a sign, and Sabbath is a sign, both of which are no longer institutive. Mm-hmm. Why? A sign points to something else. Uh, So it was the shadow, right? Christ is the substance. Yes. It's pointing to Christ. And what does Christ say? Rest in me. Yes. Christ is the Sabbath. And when you find out that Christ is is salvation, right? And that Sabbath, the Sabbath rest that we're going to have, the ultimate Sabbath rest, is the new heavens and new earth. Yes. That's what it's all pointing to. I actually just wrote, I think I said this last time, I actually wrote an article called Rest Assured. I'll post it down below in the comment section. And it has to deal with this sabbatical issue as well. Mm-hmm. How to like, understand it because Sabbath is actually pointing to salvation. Yes. That's the whole mission. Absolutely. Right. So it's kind of like...
0: Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and he is our Sabbath rest.
1: That's exactly yep. right. So it's 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 more than just, oh, we need to rest, therefore we'll be saved. That's to create resting into a work. And I say that all the time, right? It's kind of an oxymoron. Yeah. Right? By resting, I'm working. Um, But yeah, so I, again, it has to do... Uh, These the signs are to show, like once again, God is the one who sanctifies you; it's not your work. Mm-hmm. And what do we say? We're saved by grace, not by works. Yes. Right. It is that perfect parallel from the Old Testament to the New to, to the New Testament.
0: And as Christians, we do we we are involved in an initiatory sign. Is baptism yeah we are involved in an initiatory sign which is which is a very interesting thing we've also got uh the the lord's supper very interesting these are all topics that we're going to have to talk about
1: we're going to have to speaking of <laughs> communion Corey, next question okay exodus 25 when did the israelites begin to offer the bread of presence? when uh, uh when they were in the desert they didn't have bread or flour so god provided manna did the Israelites offer manna when there was no flower? Question mark. This is from he. I don't know, 4381. Ahi 4381,
0: something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, something like that. Ahi. Ahi? Ahi. A-hi. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what say you?
0: Okay, so uh as far as I can remember, we're never explicitly told if the Israelites offered man- manna. I don't think that they did, uh, because we're not told that. We are told that Moses put some manna in a jar and kept it before before God, uh, uh presumably with the Ten Commandments and the the um eventually the um the butted rod of Aaron, uh copy of the law. I think I said that already. Um But we, so manna was not the only food of the Israelites in the wilderness. It was the only consistent food of the Israelites in the wilderness. We know that they had interactions with other nations um, because of where they were living, right? We see them actually having battles with other nations during the wilderness wandering period. We see the whole um, this is, a lot of this is recorded in numbers, right? During the wilderness wandering period, we see them interacting with Moab and Eglon and Sihon and, and, and all of these different nations. So the Israelites were able to trade. They were able to buy and sell. Uh, but manna was their consistent food, meaning that it was this miraculous provision of God. Uh, and we know that they took advantage of things like uh, quail right we know that there was a couple times where god miraculously provided meat for them but they would have been hunting for meat as well and using their own animals uh, and and presumably again buying and selling and interacting with other people groups at the same time so they would have had access to flour they would have had access to bread it just would have it, i mean when you're not growing it yourself you got, you got to pay for it right so they didn't have land on which to grow it themselves they would have had to grow things and create things Things to trade um, so that they could buy and sell. So, yeah, that's what I the, uh, presumably they did this for right. the tabernacles that they would have. Now, we know, for example, there were some of the offerings and sacrifices that did not begin until they got into the promised land. Um, So there were some laws that that generation of that wilderness wandering, they actually never did because they didn't make it into the promised land. An example of this is first fruits, right? So first fruits was when, when, it it literally says in there, when you come into the land and you plant your first crops and you harvest your first crops, this is when you begin the offering of the first fruits, this tithe. Um, So yeah. Some things definitely were for the promised land, but in terms of the functioning of the tabernacle and the bread of the presence, what what I think makes the most sense is that they traded for that and and purchased flour from their nations to create that.
1: All right. Yeah. That's All right. Are, are you good with that? I am good. I, I kind of on? had like a, can I ask you a follow-up question? Impromptu. Not I can understand. try.
0: I can try to answer. Yeah. All right. Go for
1: it. What's the relationship between communion and the bread of presence?
0: between communion and the bread of the presence, Uh, provision. So the bread of the presence represented the provision of God to Israel, Mm. his faithfulness to Israel. And so it was always to be there in the presence of God. And communion, or the Lord's supper, represents the provision, the everlasting provision of Christ to us for our salvation so just as god provides for his covenant people in the old testament in the wilderness and and then in the promised land so god has made everlasting provision for us christ is the fulfillment of the bread of the presence he is that's why he could say my body which is broken for you right like the, and and th- that consumption language that jesus is able to use mm. that shocks his disciples and actually makes some of them leave him where yeah, he talks yeah. about you know um, you have to eat eat of my body and drink of my blood that's what he's talking about it's cool yeah
1: that's it i just want something else so you just kind of add more a little meat to the yeah to the question. that's yeah. fun i like yeah, that That's it. okay
0: but i'm gonna turn the tables on you now sure. it's time for you okay all right leviticus 4 matlock leviticus 4 yes All right. The question is this. We read many rules in Leviticus, such as the ones in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Why do you think these were important for the people to follow?
1: Okay. So I'd like you to chime in on this. And we kind of just talked about this. Yes. A little bit. Because I think the answer is holiness. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the answers, I should say. Um, Now, Leviticus 4, verses 1 to 10, this has to do with people doing unintentionally uh i love
0: this one it's so interesting
1: do you want to read it sure
0: one to ten the whole thing if you want to get ready brandon our (laughs) editor to put in all this text okay (laughs) and the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the people of israel saying if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish, to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. That's one to 10. There we go. So it describes, and then it describes how the rest of the animals to be taken outside of the city right. and completely burned up.
1: All right. So the question then, I'm assuming why all the process? Yes. Why? Okay. Again, I think it comes down to holiness because in, in your everyday life, you know, you get stuff. You just kind of throw it to the side. You were just like, okay, let's... And what do we do? We got a, a, a dumpster bin. We throw things in the dumpster. We tie it up, right? We have a, a very common, easy process to dispense of things. In mm-hmm. this case, it's the, the opposite, right? It's like everything's so... Methodical
0: fu- and yes. careful. Right. And very that, specific.
1: And because of that that creates um, a a major distinction between what's common and what's holy, right? So that's one factor. Uh, You create this like sacred culture essentially around the temple and around the, I guess suppose the tabernacle, around the tabernacle. And um, I I think that that's a big factor here. Now the question is what is the meaning behind these procedures? And I think, I haven't fully studied that, but the meaning behind why, Mm -hmm. why, you know, sprinkle the blood here, pour the blood here. And undoubtedly there's meaning there. There has to be. Everything the ancients did was meaningful. Now some of it's arguably lost. But I haven't fully studied to know for sure what those meanings are. Yeah, what do you think?
0: So I think I think it's really interesting that the fat is offered to God and completely burned up because the fat was seen as like the best portion of the animal. It represented right. the abundance of their life, right? Right. So that's offered to God uh, as well as the kidneys and the liver. And we know, uh, like, this may not this may not be a one for one. But I think it's really interesting that we know in other nations and surrounding nations that livers. Uh, livers specifically but i think kidneys as well but livers specifically were often used for divination the livers of sacrificed animals were used for divination so right. like reading tea leaves so by burning this by having this be something that is completely offered up that stops that from happening right. you see what i'm saying it, I it do. keeps that that sort of temptation away from israel um and then the rest of the animal also, even the portions that aren't offered to God in the temple are taken at and are supposed to be completely disposed of and burnt up, taking away any of that temptation as well. Right. But I think what's really, really cool about, about, about this is that it implies. So we know that. Okay. So we know that the life of the animal and the blood of the animal was for the atonement of the people. So it was symbolic that sin before God required a li- required life right. the wages of sin is death right so god allowed there to be substitutionary death for the people of israel for their sin so that emphasized the seriousness of sin that comes between the people and god right and specifically the blood because the teaching was that life is the the life of the animal and the life of the human is in our blood so that blood being offered is symbolic of the animal's life making atonement for that sin okay taking the taking the penalty for that sin. Now the fact that they have to sprinkle it on the veil that represents the barrier between God and the people of Israel and they have to put it on the horn they, they have to put it on the horns of the incense altar which, The incense represented the prayers of the people going up before God. The smoke of the prayers, okay, shielded the high priest. It protected the high priest from the glory of God so that he would not drop dead. So there's Mm. so much symbolism in here. So they're having, essentially, what this means is that the sin of the people and the sin of the priest defiled their prayers. It defiled their communication with God, that veil. Mm. It defiled their ability to offer peace offerings and first fruits offerings, which is why the blood is poured on the sacrificial altar as well. So it's this idea that unholiness, that sin separates the people in so many ways from God and his holiness. And that 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 relationship has to be repaired in order for Israel and God's relationship to function properly. Right. So I think there's so much meaning in that. Yes. Uh, and there was supposed to be so much meaning in that, yeah, which there is has really cool. And it all revolves around how sin puts up barriers between people and God.
1: All right, that's great. Yeah, it's a great answer. I
0: love it. That's it's very. It's so cool. interesting looking into these things. Have we done it? Are we ready for the big question? We're
1: ready for the big question, Claire. Yes. Let me read it out loud. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So this is again from Michael Abbott, ninety eighty. Please excuse my comment. I'm not trying to be clever or critical. But why should I care what the Bible says, especially when there is so little verifiable evidence that it, it is true? Right, Corey. <clears throat> what say you?
0: Okay. Well, why don't we take why don't why don't we take the first? There's a few things that I could say about this, but let, right. why don't we take that first part? Why should I care what the Bible says? Right. Well, we have to look at what the Bible claims to be. Right, So the Bible claims to be a record of what happened and what that means and what is going to happen. So it claims to be an explanation of why the world has so much evil and sin and suffering in it and how God is going to fix that. So it, it claims to have this redemptive story of God for mankind in it. So I think that's an important thing for you to know. It's a big claim for the Bible to make. Now, in terms, of <clears throat> in terms of when you say, especially when there is so little verifiable evidence that it is true. And I would really, I wish that I could speak to you about this in person so that you could clarify what you mean by this, because it, this general statement is definitely not a fair statement. What do you mean? By it, the, do you mean the Bible as a whole? What do you mean by verifiable evidence? And what do you mean by true? Like, um, So I'm going to try my best to kind of yeah. fill in what I think he probably means. Yeah, I
1: think so. Yeah, go ahead. So
0: uh, historically, there is a lot of evidence that the Bible is a historically accurate document when, here's the caveat, when there's enough history for us to test it. So not every book of the Bible is equal when it comes to its historical testability. And that's fine. It depends on the genre. It depends on what what time period you're looking at. So you can't just make this broad sweeping statement when there is so little verifiable evidence that it is true. Okay, you have to look at the different areas of the Bible and the different books of the Bible and evaluate them On their own terms and when you do this you realize that a huge portion of the Bible when it is testable comes out looking pretty good
1: covering thousands of years and you wouldn't do this with any other document or any other time in history it's true yes
0: so, like, for example, if you go into the time period of the king, so if you look at first and second kings and first and second chronicles, you go back into ancient history, especially when uh, Israel and Judah, these nations, start interacting, for example, with the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire, and you've got the names of David, Ahab, Omri uh, and Ahab and Omri of the northern Israelite kingdom. There's so many details specifically in there about what an amazing chariot force that they had, the biggest in the entire Middle East. Area they had the biggest, and you go back into First uh, and Second Kings, and it says that Omri was a usurper king of northern Israel; that he was a dynasty founder. So it makes sense of why the Assyrian records call the later kings of Israel the House of Omri. It's this dynasty name. He was he was a dynasty founder. And what was his job before he usurped the kingship? He was the commander of the chariot forces of the king of Israel. So this is just one example of of uh, the. There are so many different ways that we can look and try to verify, you know, is the Bible trying to tell us accurate history from its point of view? And the answer is yes. If you go back into Genesis, you really have to mitigate your expectations of what you're going to be able to find. Because if Genesis is telling us the truth about Adam and Eve and about the Noahic flood, yeah, the Garden of Eden is gone. It's gone. Um, When you're looking for evidence of the exodus out of Egypt or the wilderness wandering time period you have to mitigate your expectations for what you're going to find because 40 years in the wilderness a few like 4,000 years ago of people who were living a nomadic lifestyle it's going to be very difficult to find evidence of the wilderness wandering time period for example now there is circumstantial evidence for the exodus out of egypt there's lots of good books and resources and videos on that you jump forward to the new testament time period it's a completely different animal. You're looking at Roman records. You're looking at Jewish records that do talk about Jesus Christ really early on. You have to get into textual yeah. criticism when it comes to the gospels. There's actually
1: more evidence for Christ historically without the Bible than there is of Alexander the Great. Yes. And so we, we, everyone you know, just loves Alexander the Great. Like, oh, we know everything about the guy. And there's only like one, two source documents that you have,
0: and they're very, very long after his lifetime.
1: That's like right. Whereas very,
0: very long, Christ hundreds of years. Has
1: a, immediate source material. Yes. And then like over ten, uh, right? It's like, anyways, the point is, is that like saying that there's little verifiable, verifiable evidence for it, it's it goes against kind of historical analysis.
0: It definitely does. Yeah. It's 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 too much of an easy thing to do. Now, now. Yeah. is there evidence of the spiritual claims of the bible that's a completely different animal how do you get verifiable evidence that there is a god well there's a few different ways that you could do this you could look philosophically you could look spiritually you could look historically but you can't like do you see what i'm trying to to draw out here
1: for, for instance historically and spiritually could be like okay the pattern of how sin works, right, or something. You look at the pattern of how human civilization comes up when it goes into deep sin, then it collapses. Mm -hmm. You can see certain patterns throughout societies, but I know what you're saying.
0: So I think what's really interesting about Christianity and about the Bible is that the Bible and Christianity say, here's what happened historically, and now here's what that means. So Christianity is inherently a historical religion. So it's, it's really easy to watch a few, like, American atheist videos and be like, oh, wow, there's no evidence for the Bible. But when you actually start looking into it for yourself, you realize, okay, it's not as simple as a lot of skeptics would have us believe and just making these blanket statements like there's no evidence. There's actually quite a bit of evidence, historical evidence, that the Bible is saying that what they're saying is here's what happened actually happened. Now, as far as that, here's what that means... That's a different story. That's a different story. No archaeological find is going to be able to say, is going to be able to impart meaning. We have to impart that meaning. Right. Right? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a human thing. That's a spiritual thing. That's an intellectual thing. That's not just... You can, you can say that a war happened, but how do you say what that war meant? Oh, you know and what that says about good and evil that's something that we bring to the table as spiritual right. creatures and as and, and and as as people uh so i I'm, I'm struggling with that with that especially when there is so little verifiable evidence that it is true because again differing books of the bible will have because of their genre like how do you what is verifiable evidence for the book of psalms what what even is that right <laughs> like it is a book of poetry it is a book of hymns it is self-evident that it exists means that people wrote, people way back in time wrote Psalms. We know at least before 250 BC because we've got the the Dead Sea Scrolls that contain the Psalms, right? So we know that it was complete before that. In fact, all of the books of the Old Testament, uh, we know were written before 250 BC. So what...
1: <sighs> no, I think that's good. Like... Like, to me, it's kind of one of those things where it's okay. Um, are we, I, I, the Bible is the word of God. So are we saying that there's little verifi- verifiable evidence for God. Right. Or, or is that, like, that's that, That's kind of where I go, where I'm saying, okay. So you're saying that, oh, well, God's a fantasy or God's, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of a mythical creature that we just invented. Um, you know, and who created God, all these all these funny arguments. But um, when you say so little verifiable evidence, if you take atheism, the creation of, of everything is from no evidence. Right. Everything came from no evidence. Right. Nothing. It's like
0: the, they so. <laughs> they were like, well, so, well, something happened because yeah, well, we're some, here. Yeah, well, yeah. something happened because the Bible then, is here. And then
1: like, it, it ends up being like a semantic game. It's like, well, no, yeah. nothing is still something. And It's like, okay, then just stop calling it nothing and just call it something. Because but once you use the word something, you know, then someone could potentially be right beside it, and people don't like that. Anyways, so I, I just I. When, you, when the world co- comes from absolute nothingness, you have no evidence to begin with, um, and that's supposed to create everything. That that created evidence. Nothingness, no evidence, created evidence. So uh, anyway, so I, I would say that you know if you start from like an atheistic basis, I just don't see how um, you can necessarily draw that conclusion to be like, oh look, the Bible is completely has little evidence. At least little is more than nothing. Anyways, that would be one thing. But yeah. go ahead. Do you have something no, you want no, to say? no. Keep going, and okay. I'll, I'll say mine after. Um, I think when it comes to the Bible itself, you talked about the history, which is good. Uh, have the prophecies been, that, that have come true, been fulfilled? Like we talk about the book of Daniel mm-hmm. prophesying, right? With the Persians and the, uh, and the Greeks coming, prophesied Alexander the Great would come in, right? Mm-hmm. And anyone, usually scholars, sort of be like, oh, like the, the prophecy is so accurate about the empires that come and go. The scholars try to say, oh no, they wrote that book afterwards and they try to date it, but there's no evidence for it. There's no evidence that they were, that they it was written afterwards. Mm-hmm. The only evidence they have is that it suggests that it was written beforehand. Yeah, so anyways, really. my point, so they try to justify it because it's like, how do you make a, if God isn't real, how do you, how do prophecies exist? So they try to justify it like, oh no, it can't be real. We just, people just lie. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being completely uncharitable to mankind, right? It's like people are just lying all the time. Everyone's lying. The Bible's lying. You know, even uh, everyone's just lying. Like this just, And then you ask yourself, what's the point of honesty? What's the point of being honest? There's no God, there's no afterlife. Just lie to get your way. Actually, these guys, if, these, if the, suppose God's not true for a second, all these guys are lying, are making a good life for themselves. They're living, they're surviving, or they're thriving. But They're exploiting people's inability. What's wrong with that, morally speaking, if there's no final judgment, if there's no objective morality? There's nothing wrong with it, right? It's just like, you're, they're just doing what they do, what they need to do to survive. And this is how they're going to survive. So, in my mind, it's like you're actually, by accusing uh, the Word of God to be to be a lie, uh, you end up just being like, well, there's moralities, there's nothing in the real world uh, that says that lying is inherently wrong, because you can lie to survive, and that could be good, because perhaps that's the worldview you subscribe to. Anyway, so I, I just don't see that. So again, the other thing I would say for very evidence would be miracles if history of prophecy right Jesus prophecy with the uh destruction of Jerusalem in 8070 mm-hmm. that's verifiable yep hundred percent verifiable because we know Jerusalem was destroyed in eighty seventy, and we know Jesus Christ was historically a person and that's written down that he had this prophecy so anyways um let's talk about miracles uh so c- certainly some of the miracles can't be proven right well um uh, let's take a, the miracle of let's say the ones that we can't prove god healing the, the, the blind man from birth sure we can't prove that so what do you do well what do, how do we trust that miracles can be true is the question it's not necessarily oh i can't trust because it says that this event is impossible of course it's impossible so the whole nature of miracles miracles can't exist on their own in a system or in a vacuum that's just with something like the hydrological cycle where things just put, putting on its own. The point is that God intervenes in that cycle and stops it and interrupts it and changes it. And then the cycle continues or perhaps is modified, right? for uh, Forever because of it. Um, so I think that you can tell uh, th- th- your understanding of miracles or someone's understanding of miracles comes down to, your willingness to, to believe in something that's supernatural. If you don't believe in anything supernatural, of course miracles are just, you know, what does Hume say, a violation of nature. Sure, what created the, the laws of nature, right? Well, the laws of nature just, just exist in their own, just, just because they created themselves. Law, you know, it, anyways, but you need a lawmaker to make laws. So the, the, my point in saying this is that miracles, of course, supersede the laws of nature. That's the idea. Because they come from something that is super is, is above nature. right? They're super, it's super nature. That's the idea. Uh, but also you have to justify without uh, their, um, say, the, the greatest miracle, the creation of all things. Again, we have magic in the atheistic worldview, where the world just came into, into fruition from nothing. And then you have miracles that someone was able to do it. God, namely. So then you have that. And what does all evidence suggest? Well, all evidence suggests that when you see something that has a tremendous amount of order, someone's doing it. Someone made it. Someone created the pattern for which that can happen. Um, you know, when we see, like, the industry, we don't believe that, you know, airplanes and the whole in- industrial revolution started on its own. We believe conscious minds did that. Well, the, the universe and how fine-tuned it is is far more, uh, you know, convincing that someone did it than even the uh our industrial revolution and everything that we you know even industry itself so because it's like a super industry basically anyways my point in saying all this is is that uh there's a miracle in the beginning of time that you have to explain if you start there the miracle in the beginning of time how on earth does everything exist and why are we consciously fine-tuned with the universe and able to understand it? And things aren't just happening chaotically. Life's not just chaos. Everything's orderly. And we're able to understand what order is. We're able to reason. We're able to use our faculties of mind and, and of conscience in the appropriate way. Things have an objective pattern and um, uh, relationship to reality. They're not just, it's not just chaos. Um, that And that's normal. It's not just like one person has it. it that's the normative. Anyways. My point in saying that is you start there, start at the beginning of time. If it's a miracle, then you can justify other miracles existing. If it's magic, things just pop into existence. You have to explain why it isn't happening more regularly. I don't know mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. because the pattern of the pattern of magic so far is that you create patterns that are like it created the universe and then it created all the laws of nature in which things just exist perfectly in order. So you have to explain why that isn't happening regularly. Chaos popping. Some sort of, like, chaos bubbles popping up. You you have to explain why are things being created now? So you have to, that's, if it creates patterns of consistency and constants, then you have to explain why life creating itself isn't a constant. I don't know. To me, it's like, there's more than this. I'm just kind of spitballing here. Yeah, yeah. So, but there's there's a lot there. So once you start there with miracles, you could, right? I think that the prophecies come in the historical evidence you described there's so much historical evidence it's, act, yeah. it's actually crazy let's not like people dismiss it right and even people like who is that because, guy, it depends,
0: because yeah he's got a massive axe to grind he,
1: but he clearly like it's just like he's been called he's so misrepresentative
0: many of the of the evidence and and he's he's been forced to admit this but yes. he still keeps rolling the rolling the ball up because, the hill it's wh- wild then you,
1: you should ask yourself why is someone doing that yeah that seems
0: he's odd. got an emotional agenda yeah it's clear. We, uh, I mean, we're all we 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 are all um, capable of. We're all at risk of b- being emotional agenda, being yes. emotionally driven Fair
1: enough, yeah, as an
0: agenda. But it's like it's like your own biases. You can check it. There are checks and balances. Right. So I sympathize and I'm frustrated by him at the same time. But I've been sitting here, yeah, thinking about the first part of that. Why should I care what the Bible says? And I, I said off the top, because of what it claims to be, it's a big claim. So you should not just hear what other people say about it, but you should know what it says yourself. But also, like, I think you should care because I think that biblical Christianity is the only thing that can save us from the cycle of evil and despair that is human life on planet Earth. I really, really think that. So the offer is pretty big. But even if you don't buy into that, just the concept of the entire world today, there has not been any book that has influenced our history so intensely other than the Bible. So this whole generation of people who are growing up completely biblical, biblically illiterate, they have no idea where their sayings come from, where their culture comes from, where their morality comes from, none of it. Right. And they would know if they would just read and study the Bible. Yeah,
1: even just practically speaking. Yeah, That's to, what I mean. You want to know where we come from? Then read the Bible. That's what
0: I mean. Another
1: another point to add is, what's your thing? Why should I care what the Bible says? Let's change it a little bit. Why should I care what Jesus says? The guy who, the spirit of Christ, right? Who authored the Bible. Why should I care what Jesus says? Well, oh, because of what he claims, he claims to be God. Mm-hmm. He claims to have died for our sins. He claims to save us from, you know, from hell and all these other things, from sin and from, from suffering. So it's like those are big claims. <laughs> and if it's true, right, it's it changes everything. Nothing. N- there's a reason why the world changed at at this time, and everything's been Christianity has been growing ever since. It's been crazy. Because Jesus is who He claimed to be, and, and there's something to it, but you have to look into the claims of Christ. If you want to know what the Bible says, you have to know what Jesus says. Jesus claims to be God, and He, changed, he claims that He can change your life. So uh, that's a pretty big deal. So even even practically speaking, you have a, we have an obligation. Everyone has an obligation when someone's making a claim like that to look into it, because all these other religions, a lot like they aren't making claims like this. They're like they usually. A lot of them are just philosophies. Like this will help you have a, a good way of living life, mm-hmm. right? But then you, you you know you die and you melt into Nirvana and it's and that's what you you don't want to come back. It's like be reincarnated and all these other things. I know I'm just kind of butchering it. <laughs> no, no, but no,
0: no. The no, it's point good. is
1: it's it's not the same. It's not even close to being the same. Anyways, that's a whole other world of religion study. But the point is, and I, I, obviously, we don't know where this this person could not even be an atheist. It could be a religious pluralist. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know I have no clue. Um, and in that case, I recommend reading an article I did on religious pluralism, which I'll post down below, if you are a religious pluralist, Anyways. Great. So that, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, I think I'm, we I'm need to wrap it up. We've been talking we for a long time. It's true. I want to yeah. know
0: what you guys think. How would you have answered these questions? How would you respond uh, to why should people care what the Bible says? What do you think about the the evidence? for the historical reliability of the Bible or for uh, just the reliability of the Bible in general. Maybe it's not historical, maybe it's with the spiritual truths. What do you think, what would you say? What are situations in your life uh, that you've had to answer this question to people? Because I know there's been many situations in my life where this has come up just on even a casual basis. Let me know and until next week, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching.